most embarrassing moment ever in my entire life. I remember uh, like it was yesterday. It was the first day of year 12. Uh, We were in English class and I decided that uh, it was time to impress a bunch of girls. Uh, They were on the other side of the room. Class hadn't quite yet started. Uh, I remember Chelsea was there, Katie was there, uh, Beck was there. And it was time for me to impress. Uh, So I walked over and I decided that I would uh, share a bit of a story, uh, a bit of a joke, the goal being to get a bit of a good laugh and to make a good impression. And as I got to the punchline, we all burst out laughing and no one more so than me. The only problem was that uh, I had a cold and uh, with that cold I had a blocked nose, and with that blocked nose, I let out an extraordinary burst of laughter, and with that burst of laughter, I traumatised 7.30 by continuing from that point. So I'll just leave it to your imagination. We did laugh, but unfortunately, the joke ended up being on me. Well, in the very last line of this story that Jesus tells in Luke 18, he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But of course, he's not talking about how to approach girls. He's talking about how to approach God. It's uh, widely known as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, but uh, it's also known, and perhaps more poignantly, at least for this series that we're going through, it's the parable of the two prayers, two ways to pray. That's what we see in the story, isn't it? The original uh, title that I'd set some months ago for this series was How to Pray Like a Righteous Man or How to Pray Like a Righteous Woman. And the original passage that I was going to preach on was the first reading, James chapter 5, where is that famous verse, 16, that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. That's what I was going to preach on, but the reason I changed from James 5 to Luke 18 is that as I listened to Nick Russell take us through the story of Jesus' dealings with Jairus last Sunday and the Syrophoenician woman and being overwhelmed again at the incredible kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ and given a moment to reflect on what the Holy Spirit uh, was saying to me, the impression I had deeply from, I think, the Spirit was... How terrible the tragedy it would be if people came away from this series on prayer feeling as if prayer was another burden on their backs, as opposed to feeling that prayer was a blessing. The Lord Jesus doesn't place any burdens on Jairus's back or on the Syrophoenician woman's back. He takes them on himself. But when I read the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective, immediately my instinct is to think, well, you can count me out because I'm not righteous. So this verse is clearly for other people. Does that ring any bells? But the story that we're going to look at helps, hopefully, us to rethink that instinct. 
It actually uses the same word. James 5.16, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And if you look at Luke 18, which I hope you'll have in front of you as we go through it, is that in verse 9, he starts out, Jesus told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then at the end, it's the same word again in verse 14. I tell you, the second man went down to his home justified. You you see righteous in verse 9, justified in verse 14. And if you had the Greek in front of you, which the New Testament was originally written in, you would see that the Greek word for righteous in verse 9 is dikaios, and the Greek word for justified in verse 14 is dikaio. It's the same word. It's righteousified. It begins and ends with righteousness. This is a story about how to pray like the righteous. It's just that Jesus completely redefines the idea of righteousness, turning it inside out and upside down. That's what he's doing with this story. And I realized this morning that it is appropriate that we speak about this topic on Reformation Day. Today is Reformation Day. It's the day in which 504 years ago Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the wall uh, the castle church wall and uh, to the door of the church. And the, the thing that sparked the Reformation at the core was Martin Luther's realization of what this word righteous actually means. And that went on to turn the whole world inside out and upside down. And so it is appropriate on Reformation Day to think about how the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. And so let's go through the story together. In verse 9, Jesus kicks it off. He says, it says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Now, you might try to be sort of distance yourself from from that group of people. But before you do, I just want to point out that uh, there was a study in America uh, that revealed that 94% of professors think that they're above average. If you think about the maths of that, that's a little bit tricky. 94% are above average. That means that only 6% are average or below average. Uh, There was a survey of uh, a million year 12s that found that 70% of them thought that they were above average in leadership ability and only 2% thought that they were below average. Try to do the maths of that. Uh, In terms of rating their ability to um, get along with others, their people skills, 100% thought that they were above average. Uh, 60% thought that they were in the top 10%. And 25% thought that they were in the top 1%. The, The point I'm trying to get across with that survey is that when Jesus tells this story, he's not telling it to some of us, he's telling it to all of us. We all have a tendency to trust in ourselves, to look down on others and to constantly compare ourselves with others, either favourably or unfavourably. And so Jesus told this story to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they regarded others with contempt. And then in verse 10, he starts, 
two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. It might be hard for you to imagine uh, Australia being um, overrun by a a sort of superpower, a foreign uh, superpower, Um, the whole government being dissolved and somebody being put in charge from that superpower to rule Australia on their behalf. But that's exactly what had happened in the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago. They were not their own sovereign state. In fact, they had been taken over by the world superpower of the day, Rome. And Rome, one thing Rome did is that they imposed heavy taxes on all of their colonies, if you like. Um, But um, what they did is that instead of kind of doing it themselves, they would hire, if you like, Roman businessmen to collect taxes on their behalf. Um, But then the Roman businessmen felt that that was beneath them to collect uh, taxes from the Jews. And so they would um, hire a Jewish kind of um, underling to do their dirty work for them. And the only money that that Jewish underling would be able to make as they collected taxes, taxes was the money that they extorted from the people that their own, from their own people. Uh, all that is to say that tax collectors were regarded as the scum of the earth. They were traitors. They were working for the enemy and they were ripping off their friends. Not a nice guy. That's the first guy. That's one of the two guys in the story who went to the temple to pray. Interesting. The other one was a Pharisee, which as you know was at the opposite end of the spectrum. They were at the top of the social pecking order. There's an ancient historian called Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian, who said they were a body of Jews known for surpassing the others in observance of piety and exact interpretation of the laws. They were at the top of the social pecking order. In other words, they were the they were the rich kid, you know, the ones with the the Jordans. Uh, or whatever it was, sorry, that's 90s, that was with me. They were, they were the popular kids, they were the rich kids. If you like, they were the Instagram influencers with the most amount of followers in that society. Those are the two who went to pray in Jesus' story. And the Pharisee, he seems to start out okay with his prayer. Verse 11, God, I thank you. Nothing wrong with that, God. I thank you, but it all goes downhill from there. And the main thing that I want you to see in this prayer is that he was totally self-absorbed. It's all about me. If you look at his prayer, I thank you that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. That's five references to me in just two short verses. This guy is self-absorbed. Absorbed. There's another translation, uh, the RSV as opposed to the NRSV of verse 11, where it says, the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. He's not even talking to God. He's talking to himself. He is God. That's his reference point. He's self-absorbed. But I do want to point out here that There is a kind of reverse pride where you're still totally self-absorbed, not because you're overconfident, but actually because you're 
insecure. In other words, trusting in yourself, which is what Jesus says these crowd are doing, will lead you either to pride when you're absolutely killing it, like the Pharisee is here, but it can also lead you to anxiety and insecurity and despair when you're not killing it, when you're letting yourself down. But either way, wherever you are in these two, you're still trusting in yourself. It's just that in the first instance, you're having a good week, and in the second instance, you're having a bad week. Can you see that? So please don't think that because you're insecure or you're always thinking about the ways in which you fall short or how you're so jealous of that person who's doing so much better than you are or who's had life so much easier than you have, that somehow that means that you're not still trusting in yourself. You are trusting in yourself. It's just that yourself can't save you. It's a reverse kind of pride. You're still trusting in yourself. Malcolm Muggeridge calls it the miserable dungeon of the self. When you're in that place of self-pity and self-regard, self-absorption, whether it's up here or down here, you're still trusting in yourself. C.S. Lewis famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself Less. It's, it's looking out. It's looking away from yourself. And so our pastors have called it, it's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You're not looking in. You're looking out. And I think that's one of the first things we see about prayer here. The, the whole point of prayer is that you're, you've reached the end of yourself. You've tried to do life on your own and you've finally figured out that it just doesn't work and we get there we have to come back there again and again and again because Jesus said uh, blessed are the poor in spirit not blessed are the middle class or the middle upper class in spirit it's those who realize that they're spiritually bankrupt Eugene Peterson's version of of that verse is blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope You've reached the end of yourself. See, what I want you to see at the start of this series on prayer is that Jesus did not say, come to me all who are healthy and super spiritual. He didn't say, come to me all who have got their Bible reading and their prayer lives sorted and I will give you rest. That's not, that's not what he said. What did he say? He said, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. That's how you pray like a righteous person. Weary, burdened, sinful, suffering. The amazing thing about the Pharisee in this story is that uh, he doesn't actually need to repent of his sins. He needs to repent of his righteousness what's the thing that's keeping him from God what's the thing that's getting in the way of his relationship with God what's the thing that's blocking his prayer life from keeping him from getting into a deeper prayer life with God is it his sin or is it his righteousness the thing that's getting in the way 
of him praying like a righteous person, ironically enough, is his stinking righteousness. And so God is saying to him, cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone. Gloriously complete. That's the prayer of the Pharisee. But it's two ways to pray. Let's look now at the prayer of the tax collector in verse 13 where we see an incredible contrast with the Pharisee. Firstly, whereas the Pharisee stood in prime position, we see that it says the tax collector was standing far off. You remember that uh, in, in the temple there was like the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Jews, and then there was a place that the priest could enter into and the place that the high priest could enter into. This guy, the Pharisee, has put himself in prime position, but the tax collector has stood at a distance. Whereas the Pharisee held his head up high, so to speak, the tax collector prayed, and it says that he would not even look up to heaven. Whereas the Pharisee prayed with great self-sufficiency, I'm a great prayer, I've made it. That's not how the tax collector prayed, he prayed with great sorrow. It says, beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Now, the NASB translation puts it more pointedly. God be merciful to me, the sinner. He's not thinking. He's not. Have, he's not praying in reference to anyone else, but to God. Against you alone have I sinned. He's not looking down on others. He's looking up to God. His prayer is actually uh, taken almost a, a direct quote from David's prayer in Psalm 51. You know how he was the king and he uh, was up on his roof and he saw this beautiful girl and he decided that he wanted her and so he uh, committed adultery with her and then he was like, crikey, she's married, I'm going to need to take care of her husband and so she, he had him killed and finally God uncovered his whole plot and ploy and he prayed Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Well, that's where the tax collector finds himself before God. It's interesting. Scholars uh, of Paul have um, noticed a progression in uh, the way that he regarded himself um, as he, um, time went on in the letters that he wrote to different churches and how his regard for himself developed over the years and so uh, one of his earliest letters is um, the first letter to Corinth chapter 15 verse 9 where he says about himself for I am the least of all the apostles that's what he says and they say scholars that that was written around 56 AD and then um, in his letter though to the Ephesians in 60 AD uh, in chapter 3 verse 8 he now says this grace was given me the least of all the saints. So four years later, he's gone from the least of all the apostles, which there was only a small group, to now Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, where he's the least of all the saints. That was written approximately 60 
AD. And then finally, in his first letter to Timothy, uh, a couple of years later, in chapter 1, verse 15, he writes, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The least of all the apostles. The least of all the saints. The worst of all sinners as he grew in his relationship with God. What this means is that as you see more and more of the righteousness that you have in Christ, you see more and more of the wretchedness that there is in you. But your confidence has shifted to leaning on him So you're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting in him. And I I want you to see that in this story that we're looking at and in the gospel story, that this idea is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the beginning and the middle and the end. You actually grow in your dependency. You actually grow in your humility. And you grow in your sense of what a great gift his righteousness is to you. In other words, it's not just the ABCs of the Christian life, this story, but it's the A all the way through to Z. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. Coming to God, I need you. I need you more now today than I did yesterday. Every time you pray, you reenact the gospel. And so Jesus concludes the story in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his own justified, righteous, rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. And so in this story today, we meet a man who lived an impeccably good life. He was great at reading the Bible. He was great at saying his prayers. He gave generously to the poor. He was doing it all right. He felt good about that. And yet when he went home, he went home condemned. We meet another man in the story who was a traitor, who was working for the enemy, and who was exploiting and extorting from his friends. But when he comes home, he comes home commended. Why? Why did he come home commended? Very simply, because he wasn't trusting in himself. He entrusted himself to God. That's why. That's why James 5 verse 16, he can say, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But there are two kinds of righteousness that we've seen in the story. There's the righteousness that you can muster up on your own, like the Pharisee in this story, looking to yourself, looking to your own accomplishments, your own performance this week, which Isaiah 64 verse 6 in the Old Testament describes, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's that kind of righteousness that you can 
look into to find, like the Pharisee, to either build yourself up or (laughs) feel terrible. But there's another righteousness that you can get that the tax collectors finds. And it's not by looking in. It's by looking out as a gift of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ, coming totally from the outside. Theologians have called it an alien righteousness because it's not in here. It's, it's in God and it's given to us as a gift. That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 can say, God made him who knew no sin... Who's that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who's perfectly righteous in history. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He's talking about Jesus dying on the cross as a condemned criminal and excruciating death. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He gets our condemnation that we deserve. And we get his commendation, perfectly righteous. So friends, in some way this morning, I've been aiming incredibly low. Key verse, James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous, the righteous is powerful and effective. And I've tried to show you very simply that if you have entrusted yourself to Christ, that you are a righteous person. And that means your prayers are are powerful and effective, but you're not looking to yourself for that righteousness. You're looking to Him, and that makes your prayers powerful and effective. But if some of you in your head in the week say to yourself, well, but, you know, really there are still levels of righteousness, and I know that I haven't quite made it yet, then can I say I have failed? Because you're still trusting in yourself rather than entrusting yourself to God. If you say to yourself after you've um, stuffed up completely, well, I can't pray now, look at how terribly I've just sinned, then I failed. Because you're still trusting in yourself. That's exactly where the tax collector was. And that's exactly how it was that he walked home righteous, not looking to himself but looking to Jesus. But if you are learning bit by bit to turn away from yourself and look to the Lord Jesus Christ as your righteousness and knowing that you're righteous in him, then that's a huge win. (laughs) Because that means your prayers are powerful and effective because you're coming with your confidence based on him and not on yourself. And so with that confidence that the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. I'm hoping that you got one of these as you came in and that there's a pen nearby. And I want to invite you to grab this and grab hold of your pen as we start this series. And if you don't have it with you, then um, you can grab one on the way out. Uh, and I actually want you invite you to pray. We've heard some wonderful testimonies of answered prayer. And I'm going to... Um, Uh, do something crazy, which is put this promise, put God's promise to the test. See if he actually means it. But God is saying to us, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And so I'm inviting you to put down the date, which is the 31st of the 10th, 21, 
and to write out your requests. You might write out that verse from James 5 as well, verse 16, that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And brothers and sisters, I'm inviting us as a community to go on a journey over these next four weeks to put that to the test and to pray. I've put some guidelines there. Guidelines there. What are you facing right now? Um, how do you feel about it? It might be better said, what do you want God to do? And then finally, what can you ask God to do specifically with the thing that you're facing? And just one other thing, I just really want to urge you, please don't be spiritual like the Pharisee, like, oh, I can't ask that or I shouldn't ask that. No, he wants you to come like a child. My kids never say, oh, I shouldn't ask that. They're open about what they want. And so I want to invite you to put that down, date it, and I'll give you a few moments to do that now. If you haven't got the piece of paper, if you haven't got the pen, you can ask the Holy Spirit to show you what it is that's on your heart that you want to ask for, and you can write it down later. I hope that you'll uh, keep that. Uh, You might need to finish that thought off uh, later uh, after the service when you get home. Put it in your wallet. Put it in your Bible. Keep coming back to it and let's commit to praying together and adding to it over this month of November. But let me finish by praying. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for showing us this topsy-turvy inside-out meaning of what it means to pray like a righteous person, that our righteousness is not in ourselves but in you and you say that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So please, Lord, write it on our hearts that for those who put their trust in you, who've stopped looking to themselves and started looking to you, that we are, in fact, a righteous person because of the gift of righteousness that we find in Christ and therefore our prayers are powerful and effective. Please build that confidence into us. And Lord, as we hear more testimonies of answered prayer, uh, both up here and in conversation with each other, would you teach us to pray and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing.